0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Healing the Nations podcast, your podcast for religious liberty and end-time events. And I have another returning special guest, Brother Andre Waller. Elder Waller, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, Brother Peter, it's always a pleasure and uh, very much appreciate your friendship and and allowing me to be on here.
0: Praise the Lord, the privilege is mine. Now, Elder Waller, can you tell us a little about what you've been doing lately?
1: Well, lately... uh, have been diving headfirst into developing a podcast called the gospel preneur. And, you know, I was just, just starting, you know, just go ahead and just get started. I didn't have all the perfect things to do it, but I started the podcast and it was in connection with doing Bible studies with some of my, the context from an evangelistic series that I, that I have been doing as well. So we kind of dovetail, the podcast and the Bible study together. So on the podcast, we we deal with different studies of of the Bible. And then also there's some sermons on there uh, that that we post as well.
0: And that podcast is also on Podbean and a lot of other platforms. Is that correct?
1: Yes, on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, you know, you name it, it should be there.
0: Amen. Praise the Lord. Now, Elder Waller, you've been teaching and preaching in-time events for a very long time. Is that correct?
1: Yes, I I guess you could say that. I guess it's actually relative to how long someone's been on planet Earth, but as far as I'm concerned, uh, for about 20-something years now. For
0: over 20 years. and So you have seen patterns and cycles of how God's people respond to certain crises and situations. So in viewing this current COVID-19 crisis, what are some – of your observations of how God's people have reacted?
1: Well, that's a, that's an interesting question. Of course, there are a myriad of responses, but I have broken them down. Um, First and foremost, I think it caught everybody kind of flat footed, you know, just kind of, Whoa. And then everything shut down. And then after a couple of weeks we started to respond and, and shift a little bit. Then there's also been a very, I don't want to call it extreme, but there's been a position taken where persons are questioning whether or not this is the end of everything or if it's the beginning of the seven last plagues. I mean, there's been that type of visceral response. And then there's also been a response of kind of like an indifference, kind of like everybody just calm down, everything's normal, and which is not normal. And so there's been a myriad of responses that are there. And, you know, prayerfully, those who are students of the word Will find their place in scripture, not necessarily, you know, based on their emotion or what they're seeing on on television.
0: And so, as you observe things based on your study of Bible prophecy, where do you think we're at right now in Earth's history?
1: Well, if I were to take the the crisis that we're presently in with COVID, and I would put it in a Bible verse, you know, it would be in Matthew, right, where Jesus begins to go through and talk about the signs of the end and he says after he makes the list of the pestilence so covid would be in the context of pestilence then the verse says these are the beginning of sorrows so if it's the beginning of sorrows it's not the end of sorrows and i do believe that this is a contraction it's an intense contraction there are things taking place that will limit our movements and activities going forward but this is a contraction, and this is not the end. This is a birth pain, but the greater forecast of something more tremendous is still on its way. So that's how I see that.
0: Now, um, I've seen content produced recently where some people are predicting that the Sunday law will happen no later than this such time. The first time I met you was an in-time camp meeting in 2006, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. In view of that, we've uh, seen you know different events that happened. September eleventh happened, and we thought that was the end. Uh, the economic crisis that happened—that's uh, the end. Why is God's people so susceptible to reacting in such a way?
1: Well, that's the deep question. You know, I almost like to do a psychoanalysis of of the remnant, right? So we desire to a great degree to to see Jesus and to be ready for His return. I think. Ultimately, I would like to paint that idea over the saints. However, we live to a great degree as if we're not really preparing for his return. And what I mean by that is those who were in Egypt when the blood was on the doorposts were living and behaving in such a way as though they were preparing to exit what happens with us is we neglect to live in that manner. And so when we see a crisis, we become anxious. And the Bible says that those who understand the gospel, they will have peace that passes all understanding. The the effect of the gospel is peace and it's rest. And the reason why we are at unrest is because we have not been resting in Christ the whole way through. And so, because there has not been a consistent Bible study life, or there has not been a consistent prayer life, or consistent, you know, witnessing component in the experience um, with Christ as the center, it is easy to be um, to overanalyze something, you know, or to look at a situation in the wrong light, and it's it's easy to do. I mean, even some of the I just heard something today, which it actually. Cause my heart to be a little sad, um, but honest persons, even people who teach the truth, are imbibing ideas that don't match with the plan that heaven has itself um, so in short, people are not ready, and so when they see a crisis, they become anxious, and now they want to hurry up and get ready and that's that 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 plays a part it's not the only thing that's a big part
0: now you mentioned a exit strategy that god's people should be living out what does that exit strategy look
1: like well my man uh to be honest with you i'm still learning and developing in that space but to make it extremely simplistic if we look at the sanctuary the wilderness tabernacle uh, the furniture that's in that that whole model It gives us an instruction or it gives us a template of how to live. And so when you start at the altar of sacrifice, it is, you know, you're presenting yourself as a living sacrifice unto God as a reasonable service. And then you go to the labor and it's a symbol of death to self and resurrection and new life in Christ Jesus. And then you go to the holy place where you have the table of shoe bread and the altar of incense and um, the candlesticks. And table shoe bread represents the presence of God or the presence of Jesus and the word of God. And we are to eat that bread on a continual daily basis. And we are to be witnesses for God and to be uh, interceding for our brothers and sisters with the altar of incense. So in that holy place experience there, we find you know, what we are to be doing as the core of our experience. And then ultimately in the most holy place, That's where God's presence resides presently, right? That's where he is right now. And in that space, he's trying to separate sin from the sinner. You know, that's been the whole purpose of the sanctuary all all together. But we're in the final phase of him separating sin from the sinner. And the reality of that is that as we're in that most holy place experience, we will want to run out because we're going to be exposed. Like when, when I sit down and I'm in prayer and communion with God, and I'm looking at the life of Christ, sometimes I just begin to feel unworthy and unclean. and (laughs) Like, what is it that God sees in me that he wants me? You know? And then there's the reality. I was reading the other day. I was doing a talk on Daniel 9. uh Uh-oh. Yeah, I was doing a talk on Daniel 9, sharing with the group, and then it just hit me in my mind. Daniel says, righteousness belongs to you, oh God. But confusion of faith belongs to us. And Daniel, is a, in our eyes, when you look at his life, he, there's no sin that we, we observe in the scripture regarding him. But he includes himself in that. And I think, especially as we are in the last hours of our history, we're supposed to be pressing closer to Jesus. Communion, unbroken communion with God, unbroken fellowship with God. That is to be the lifestyle. Now, how do you do that in daily life? You know, we got to go to work you know, you got to take care of your children, you got to feed your dog, you have to, there's a way to live where you, you make sure that you're in constant fellowship with God, you're, you're whispering a prayer to God as you're at work, you're, you take time to be in nature, like, that's the key, you know, take time to be in nature, go to the beach, go for a walk in the, in the woods, you know, those, those things are important, and of course, sharing the gospel with others, spending time in prayer, we talked about those things, but that's, in a very simple manner, that, that is what we should be focused on, that template that we find in the sanctuary.
0: Now, ever since this COVID-19 crisis happened and ever since the shelter-in-place orders happened, many of us gospel workers have started to produce a lot of content online. Now, my observation is is that you seem to have taken a different approach than other people and that other people are just going on current events and the latest development of what's going on in the news, but you've stuck in more with prophetic themes from Daniel and Revelation, more dealing with practical biblical studies. Why did you go that direction?
1: Well, that is a great question, and I'm glad you asked it. So I've been studying prophecy for a long time, and I do believe that you are to mark out the events that are transpiring in the world to know where we are, right? However, I believe that there are three levels of focus. And I think, to a large degree, we as a people have focused on the events that are transpiring in the world. So the economic crisis that is going to increase, there's no question in regards to that, or the moral decay that is present in our world, or the same-sex marriage issues, or racial tensions that are transpiring, or... Some people believe COVID is, you know, some type of whatever they think it is. You know, there's all these things that you could trace out uh, or the new world order. These are all things that you can trace out. But my friends, I believe to a large extent where the mind, when it focuses on those things, I'm not saying not to know about them, but when it focuses on those things, it doesn't necessarily give strength. And so there are three levels. There's the focus on the events that are happening in the world, and then there's a second level. The second level is events happening in the church, and there are many people that focus on those things. You know, whatever apostasy that they may see or they think they're calling out, which, again, apostasy does exist. Rebellion is in the heart of the people of God. It does happen. But that's the second level. Focus in that space. But, again, the most important place to focus is where Jesus is. And Jesus is in the most holy place. And Jesus is doing a final work. And as he's doing that work, we need to be cooperating with him for everything else that is happening in the world, whether it be in the church or whether it be in the world, is a reflection of his movements in heaven. So if we don't know what's going on in heaven, then we're going to interpret what's happening in the church wrong, and we're going to interpret what's happening in the world wrong. So our view must be from God's perspective and not from a myopic human perspective, looking at the events of the world and going down certain rabbit holes that will not give you strength. But the strength comes from the sanctuary. Psalm 96, verse 6, strength and beauty are found in the sanctuary. So I need strength. I need courage. I need victory over sin. And I can't have those things if I'm wondering after the beast. I can't have victory over sin if I'm wondering after the apostasy that I see in other people or even the the sickness and the disease that I see in myself. My eyes must find their resting place on the person of Christ because without him, everything else is theoretical. Everything else is just an argument. Everything else is just a theory. I mean, so many times folks will be like, this is the end. This is the last hope. And then it's not the last hope. Somebody says, this is the final financial crisis is going to be, and it's not the final. We have to stop doing that. All of those things will be reflective of what God is doing in the heavenly sanctuary. Our eyes must be fixed there. Listen to this. There's only one person that made it through the final crisis at Calvary. Only one. It wasn't Peter, who was zealous and was willing to cut off the ears of apostate leadership, right? And it wasn't Judas, who was you know, smarter than Jesus. Thought he was going to help Jesus finish the work by, you know, setting him up. It wasn't the liberal and it wasn't the conservative. It was Jesus who made it through through the crisis. And those who follow the lamb are the ones that will make it through the crisis. So that's why I try to stay as grounded as I can in scripture, because there's only one way to make it. And that's following the word of God, following the lamb, wherever he goes.
0: Now, following up on that point, There are a lot of quote-unquote conspiracy theories that are being connected to Bible prophecy and also current events. Uh, Do conspiracy theories have a place in Bible prophecy?
1: I thought you were going to ask me that question. Um, There are some things that are conspiracy and there are conspiracy theories. And what I have noticed, and, and this is just my observation. What I have noticed is, again, a hyper-focus on that which is not the main thing, even if it were true, leads away from the focus on what the main thing is, which is Jesus Christ the righteous. So if I am identifying ills that are being done wrong or, you know, there might be a cabal that is trying to organize X, Y, Z. Though that may be true, how much time am I spending on that as far as my soul salvation and the salvation of my brothers and sisters are concerned? So there is no place for conspiracy theories. However, there are conspiracies. We we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. There are people who are evil and who are planning things and looking to manipulate and control. There's clearly that. But even then, Where are my eyes fixed? Even if I figured out every secret movement that everybody was making, that's not going to help me stay true to God. If I'm aware of those things, okay, maybe that makes me aware, makes me run to Jesus, maybe. But only love is what's going to sustain me. And so at the end of the day, I remember, this is a true story, Brother Peter. I was talking to a gentleman, I won't say his name. He's written books, uh, several books that a lot of people have read. And I happened to go visit him one day, and we were talking, and as we were talking about end-time events, and I was giving him a statement. I literally gave him a statement from the Bible and Spirit of Prophecy, and he disagreed with me. And I was like, why are you disagreeing with me? He said, well, and he reaches back behind his head, and he pulls out a book written by a Um, I want to say a witch, uh, like a Freemason in that type thing. And he pulls the book out and he's reading to me from this book. And I'm like, wait, I'm telling you this is what the Bible says. (laughs) This is what the spirit of prophecy says. Are you going to pull out a book written by someone that's inspired by the devil to try to convince me of this point over here? I said, nah. We get caught up too much in that type of stuff. If I were to ask and I don't want to be rude, but if I were to ask the majority of Adventist brothers and sisters, hey, so who is the Antichrist power? They'll tell me. They'll just tell me, and I'll say, okay, show me from the Bible why you say that. Tell me from the Bible why your position is XYZ. I have come across so many who cannot do that. If I say, what is salvation? Explain to me from the Bible salvation. But you can tell me about this secret order. And you can tell me about what the Pope did yesterday, but you can't tell me about Jesus and salvation and how he's changed. You know what I'm saying? Like, there has to be a balance. Again, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are conspiracies. But even if it were true, where's your focus? Where's your strength come from? Where's your joy come from? Because by beholding, we become changed.
0: Now, going to end time events. Mm
1: hmm
0: seeing social media and seeing some trends and tendencies and posts from our people, it seems that there is a fair share of some of the Adventists that are afraid of a resurgence of secular humanism, communism, and also the climate change movement. How does that fit into end-time events?
1: Mm. Well, I, I have a very simplistic understanding of, of that. Uh, Revelation 17 talks about a woman riding the beast. And that woman rides the beast all the way into the end. Uh, Revelation chapter 13 talks about all the world wondering after the beast. And so once we identify who the beast is, then whatever other movements there are, will find their place underneath and controlled by this beast power. You understand what I'm saying? So it won't just be, you know, the left dominating and then just running away with everything what will happen is the left will come underneath the control of the superior power which the bible identifies in revelation 17 and revelation chapter 13 as the papal system and they will all come under that power there will be a three-fold union and that three-fold union will usher in the final crisis for god's people so There should be, without question, a concern. However, (laughs) that concern should be more so where God's people are trying to get the gospel to the world in the time of our generation. And we got to pick the right fights to fight. And that's why we have to look at everything from the perspective of God, not from a misconstrued, I want to say evangelical, but a misconstrued evangelical approach to prophecy. We have a unique position and a very special and true understanding of prophecy that puts all of these uprisings in context.
0: So following up that observation, what's distinct and different from the Adventist end-time prophetic perspective from an evangelical perspective?
1: I'm going to answer that tacitly um, because I know more about what I believe than what others do. But as far as as the Seventh-day Adventists is concerned, we recognize that the religious liberties of our country are going to be taken away from us. And we can see liberties already being taken away just, just by the the undertones of how people are responding to a crisis. So we know that people are primed to give up their liberties for the sake of the nation, right? It's the same concept that was K. used, right? It's better that one man die than a whole nation perish type thing. And so from an Adventist perspective, when we're looking at end time events, we're looking at the event from the perspective that God has a plan to separate sin from the sinner. And that when this crisis hits. There will be a revelation of the character of God. And in that revelation of the character of God. The whole world will get to see. The demonstration of God's character in his people. Well, whereas the evangelical prophetic line kind of goes like, you know, there's an uprising of secularism largely. Largely. And then there's a rapture, and then folks are taken away, and then there's a little bit more time for folks to get their lives together, and then, you know, that type thing. That's not our position. Secularism is going to rise, or has risen. It's on its way out, actually. It's about to go out underneath another power. But it has risen, and is about to transition to another power, and they don't even realize that it's about to transpire because of the supernatural workings of the impersonation of of Christ by Satan and when that happens the game is over I mean at the end of the day you know God's people have to really understand what God's plan is and I, I keep going back to that because I'm not going to get afraid every time there's a financial issue I'm not going to come up be afraid every time there's a virus I'm not going to be afraid when there's a hurricane and the whole towns are wiped away we know all these are the beginning of sorrows the greater test comes When the mark of the beast is passed. And mind you, let me just say this, and hopefully somebody hears this. Those who pass the National Sunday Law are not the enemy. They're not. Those who pass, some of them, let me just qualify that, some of them are not the enemy. Just like at Calvary. Not everybody was the enemy of Christ. They didn't understand what they were doing. Jesus himself said, Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. It's the same thing with the son in law passes. Those people that do that don't know what they're doing, they think they're doing the best thing. It is the lamb like behavior that when we go into that crisis and our characters reflect the reality of what God's character would be in that time frame, that's when God is glorified. I know he didn't ask me this, but sometimes because we don't understand God's plan, we begin to attack other churches and attack other religions. And that is not our responsibility. Our job is to reveal the character of God and reveal what God desires for his people and reveal the plan so that everybody can say, oh, that's not what God wanted. Oh, okay. And they come back on to this side. So, yes, there are enemies. There are people that are going to rile up against us, but even our enemies. What does the Bible say we should do to our enemies? Love our enemies. Do good to them that despitefully use you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my namesake. Sometimes the spirit in which we deal with these issues reflects that we really don't know our Lord. And we're more reflective of, of Peter chopping someone's, not like you, Peter, but <laughs> the, Peter, the Peter in the Bible chopping people's ears off. Versus the the meek and lowly Jesus who who actually healed and put the ear back on, you know? That's how I see these these issues there.
0: Amen. My name is the most rebuked name out here in the world from every pulpit, isn't that correct?
1: <laughs> I don't know. There's some Judases, brother.
0: are there any Judases out there? <laughs>
1: Have mercy. Oh, man.
0: Now, recently, there's been an emphasis in certain segments of our church to be more involved in social issues. Those mm-hmm. that more in line with the right, is to speak out about issues such as abortion, the same-sex marriage issue, while some in the more lean to the left is more encouraging that the church speak out against racism. How should the church react to these social issues?
1: Man, you, you're trying to get me in trouble, brother. Um, and I know that this there's a nuanced response here. So the reality is, that we were first given the mandate before any of these groups rose up to minister to those who were less fortunate, to speak up for those who could not be spoken for. I mean, we were given that responsibility. Is this not the religion that I've chosen for you, right? Um, So that has been our responsibility. That responsibility, the responding to racial issues or the responses to the injustices that are in our land must fall under the context of the third angel. And I say that because sometimes when we join in with the others who are saying and doing uh, these marches or, you know, different things, again, the people that are responding that way do not understand the overall plan. So if we're going to join that group or those persons, we should definitely be doing it in light of the third angel. I think to a great degree, we begin to imbibe the spirit of these persons and sometimes to become more political than just dealing with that issue. And if we're falling into political hands, that's not something we want to be a part of. So my strong recommendation Is that whatever issues that we deal with, we deal with them on our turf and our territory. You know, like it's almost like you want to control the environment. So, if we're going to do a march, let's do it in in the context of the third angel. If we're going to go help with an issue, because we are not Malcolm X, okay? That's not us. There's a limitation in what he did. We're trying to solve the problem. And I say this. I do not believe that Christians really believe that the gospel is the wonderful simplifier of life's problems. I believe to a great degree that we think that we must take on and process issues just like the world does it. So, for instance, for me, let's say, for instance, the the shooting with the, the young man down in Georgia. Immediately now, it's been put as if it were a race problem. And it may well be a race problem. But my friends, what would be the solution to the race problem? Like, what is the solution to poverty? What is the solution to nepotism in business? What is the solution to greed? The solution is beyond what we have been doing, and it is in the person of Jesus and the power of the gospel. But because we lack power, we must now work under the machinations and the operations of how the world processes and, and does things. And so I think I'm saying a lot. And I may not be answering the way people want me to answer, but it doesn't really matter in that sense. I really believe to a great extent we don't believe the gospel. And and the gospel does get in the trenches with people. So I'm, I'm not saying not to get in the trenches. I'm saying get in the trenches. But getting the trenches under the banner of the third angel, getting the trenches under the banner of the solution of the most holy place and God setting up his eternal kingdom. You know what Jesus said about the poor? Jesus said the poor will always be with you. Why would he say something like that if we're supposed to solve poverty? Our object as God's people is not to solve the poverty issue. Our object is to bring in and usher in the second coming of Jesus.
0: It reminds me of Jesus' example that there were a lot of social problems in the days of Judea, but Jesus didn't align himself with a a movement like the Zealots or the Pharisees, but he was his own movement, and he brought the gospel to change lives. Is that?
1: That's it. That's the summary. That's it. Now, you're
0: a literature evangelist at heart, and you have a literature evangelism school. How does uh, literature evangelism work for the end time work as religious liberties are being taken away?
1: Good question. The answer is, I really don't know. I mean, even with this, with this issue with COVID, you know, we've had to make an adaptation because you can't just go door to door without getting arrested or, you know, people just being afraid of you, you know? So even in this situation, we've had to adapt. And I believe we've, we've come up with some decent ideas and we're going to be coming up with some more of how to adapt, how to get the books to the homes. And to be specific, I don't know exactly how it goes all the way down to the end, but I believe God will give us wisdom as we're navigating uncharted territory, if you will.
0: Now, I've noticed that there's a negative list of end-time events, such as Sunday Law and natural disasters, but there's also a positive list of the positive things that will happen before Jesus comes. One of the positive things is that the gospel of the kingdom we preach in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come. Matthew 24, 14. We're in a situation where there are certain nations that have yet to hear the three angels' messages. Iran, North Korea are some of the more visible examples. How do you see the gospel being preach in all the world before Jesus comes?
1: I try to parallel everything with the life of Jesus. So Jesus is doing his ministry And he is going about from city to city, healing the sick, preaching the gospel, teaching. And it culminates in that last week, right, where now he's letting people call him the Messiah. And he's doing the whole triumphal entry. And now the the message is kind of swelling. Jesus said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. When he goes to Calvary, and in that moment when he demonstrates what he was preaching, that moment in time that he's lifted up from the earth was like a, I don't know, in my mind it's just like a great light just goes and just flashes. And there's a point in time which this that message of his death went everywhere, and that message of his resurrection went everywhere. And Colossians says that in that time frame, the gospel had been preached into the entire world. That's what Colossians chapter 1 says. So I see a similar situation here, meaning that in this time of what I consider the swelling of the third angel, that third angel's message being preached and all these opportunities now with the Internet and now, it can go everywhere. Like we're about to do a, a um, some broadcasting here that's going to go to 92 million different possible homes. You know, it's like we could never do that before. But now from my little desk, I can record something, send it out, and it can go nearly everywhere. But that's not enough. There's the declaration and then there's the demonstration. And I believe that when the crisis hits, it is of God's order— That his name will be glorified when his people are faithful in that crisis. And it will be like a light that flashes through the entire world. Who are these people that are resisting this most wonderful idea to bring everyone together? It will be everywhere. No one will be able to hide from the reality of that. And of course, I believe angels will help get the message out. But it's in those moments of crisis. Another example. Here, Old Testament... They're in Solomon's temple. Daniel and his friends are taken captive. Jerusalem had the responsibility of being a light to the world, but they were not. So what happened? God had to send them into a crisis, took them captive. They were sent to Babylon. When they were in Babylon in their crisis, as they were faithful in the crisis, then what happens? Nebuchadnezzar, in, at the end of Daniel chapter 2 gives glory to God. At the end of chapter 3, he makes a declaration to the entire world that no one should speak anything negative against the God of heaven. At the beginning of chapter 4, which is written in his own language, he makes a declaration almost like the first angel's message, giving glory to God. At the end of that chapter, he gives glory to God. Why? What's happened? The people of God have been put under a crucible, and as they were faithful in that crucible, now their witness— was so strong and so powerful that even the pagans began to proclaim the realities of who God was. And so I believe very strongly that the gospel will accelerate, and I believe it's accelerating even now, but it will go even faster once the crisis hits and God's character is seen in his saints, and it will begin to just swell into the loud cry and the work will be finished.
0: So in order for that to happen, what is the message of the gospel that we as a people should emphasize?
1: Well, Christ, our righteousness. I mean, this is the, the one message that will consume all others. That's what the, the pen of inspiration tells us. It's that third angel's message. That third angel is, here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. That third angel manifested in the midst of the crisis. And it's, let me say it in a different way. The gospel, Jesus lived a perfect life. He died and sealed that perfection. He raised, showing that he dominated death and that sin had no power over him. He intercedes and shares with us his perfect life. And then ultimately, he glorifies his saints with himself. And this is the gospel that will be preached into all the world as a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. It is both a declaration and a demonstration. And yes, there's no question that there will be an exposing of the man of sin. There will be a revealing of the spiritualism. There will be a revealing of the the trifold union. But at the end of the day, that revelation comes because there's such a great manifestation of the character of God in his people
0: final question, and I'm asking this to probably every guest that I have have gone through the podcast in the last month and a half. How do we get ready for Jesus to come?
1: How do we get ready for Jesus to come? Moment by moment. You know, this is the way I've described it in my mind. Unbroken communion how can I have unbroken communion where me and the Lord are always in fellowship with each other, where whatever trial comes my way, I'm talking to him. When everything's going well, I'm still talking to him. When I'm with my wife or my daughter, I'm still in fellowship with him. I want unbroken communion, unbroken fellowship. So what does that look like? Well, there's the third chapter of ministry of healing. Talks about the life of Christ, and she describes the life of Christ and says, He spent time in scripture and nature, and this was the secret of a life of power. Spending time in scripture and in nature was the secret of a life of power for Jesus. How much more for me? Spend time in God's word, spend time in fellowship. That sanctuary outline is a very simple one. You follow that blueprint. We don't have to make it complicated. It's very simple. And the other part is this. The other part, and I, again, I'm saying the same thing. I'm just saying in a different way. We get ready for Jesus to come by removing anything that will break my communion with him. And we're honest with God. Like, 100% honest. Like, you got to be raw. Like, God, I don't like reading my Bible. Like, literally, you have to say, I don't like reading my Bible. Please help me read my Bible. God, I don't want to witness today. But, Lord, give me a love to to witness to others. Honesty. And in that honesty, in that communion, God's okay with you talking to him. At that point, be willing to let him work in you. And then the other part is the Bible makes promises. And that's why I am saying unbroken communion, because when you read the word and you're constantly thinking about it, God's word is sure. And it creates in you what we desire, which is faith and love and hope. That is created by fellowship with him. He is the source of everything good. So, if I, again, if I would just give a simple answer, which again, I think I did, I'm just talking a lot. The simple answer is unbroken fellowship. Turn off anything that's stopping you from having fellowship, break up with anyone that's causing you not to have fellowship with the Lord. Go on a break, find a quiet spot, reconnect with God unbroken communion is what you want unbroken and so it's almost like we're on a cell phone and you're driving and you're having a conversation and all of a sudden the cell phone drops you know you're like oh i'm in a no cell service area we don't want those type of relationship with the lord we want unbroken <laughs> connection and communion with god now are there practical things you could do yes You want to eat right. Of course, you want to exercise. Of course, you want to go to make sure you're fellowshipping with your brothers and sisters. Of course, you want to uh, read your Bible. All those things, practical things. You want to get out in nature. Those are all practical things to do. But to simplify it, unbroken fellowship and communion. And when you do that, God's word is given to you. He gives you exactly what you need to do in your life. And you make those changes because he's giving you the ability to do it. You don't have it naturally. It is not in you to live righteously. It's all in him. And I praise God for his mercy and grace to us.
0: Amen. Elder Waller, thank you so much for joining us again for this podcast coming in a second time. We hope that you come anytime you your heart's desire, you have a open invitation.
1: Thank you, my brother. It's, it's always a, a blessing to be on here, man. And, And I always look forward to your questions. I'm not always sure where you're going to come with them, but, you know, I try my best.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully they don't scare you that much. (laughs) It's all good. So, Elder Waller, can you close us off with a word of prayer?
1: Sure, let's do that. Our Father in heaven, just want to thank you for your grace and mercy and the opportunity that we've had, Lord, to, to fellowship with you and with each other. I pray, Lord, that the answers that were shared today, the questions that were given today, Father, would be a benefit to those who are listening. Father, we want to be ready for your return. We want to walk with you, not in fear and anxiousness, but in peace. And I know that peace only comes by true fellowship and communion with you. Teach us, Lord, how to do this, how to talk with you and walk with you, to hear your voice behind saying this is the way walk ye in it. For those souls who are struggling now, Father, send angels that excel in strength to give them the courage to continue walking with you. For those who may be discouraged, Father, please lift their hearts. I know, Father, that you love each of us more than we could possibly think or imagine. So we we thank you for this. And we pray, Father, in the name of Jesus, knowing that you can do abundantly above whatever we ask or think. In Jesus' name again, we pray. Amen. Amen.